Welcome to the Franchise You Podcast, where key industry leaders provide education and inspiration. Here's your host, Dr. Kathy Gosser, the director of the Yum Center for Global Franchise Excellence at the University of Louisville. In this episode of Franchise You, we have the opportunity to talk to someone who's done incredible things, and that is Damian Dwen. Damian, welcome to the podcast. So glad you're here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you're the founder and CEO of Lafayette Square, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. But first, let's talk about you. So you have an incredible career focused on investing and finance, starting with being an analyst at Solomon Brothers, then moving quickly up to Goldman Sachs then Credit Suisse. And you were then the co-CEO and co-founder of Brightwood Capital, where you led that firm for almost 11 years. Then in November of 2020, in the height of COVID, you founded Lafayette Square. Oh my gosh. So Damien, instead of me telling your incredible story, can you point out some highlights of your life, maybe starting with your educational journey at Georgetown? I'm a proud Hoya. I, I came out of Georgetown, interestingly, right in the middle of what we now know is a 40-year bull market. Interest rates went from you know the teens when Ronald Reagan came into office and Volcker was doing what he needed to do at the Fed. And I came out you know, 20 years in the middle of a 40-year cycle. Mm. Um, in 1997, the banks were desperate to get talent. Uh, I'm talking globally. Goldman Sachs was just going public. And in a lot of respects, I feel like I was in the right place at the right time. The beauty of the Georgetown education is it gave me the right mix of liberal arts and practical business knowledge. Then I had the great fortune at Goldman Sachs when I joined that firm as a second-year analyst in 1998 to just have a series of experiences early in my career, which would be critical to my future success. Goldman moved me to London as a second year, going into my third year as an analyst. Got to spend two years over there. Um, I came back just before 9-11. The firm supported me in setting up my own business within the firm. So I got to be an entrepreneur uh, inside of a big place like Goldman Sachs, which was a terrific experience. And as is often the case with young people, I was incredibly ambitious and very much in a hurry and took an opportunity to move over to Credit Suisse to found a business for them called Special Opportunities, which was a breakout opportunity. Again, right place, right time. I worked there for six years, all in New York, managing a lot of money. But I was there when the bubble uh, burst for the great financial crisis. Mm. Of course, we know that was not the end of the cycle in fixed income, but it definitely gave us a liquidity crisis. And I wound up on the right side of that liquidity crisis. Uh, Credit Suisse was so keen to get rid of assets, they sold me investments that I had originated. That spin out did well. I made a lot of money personally, very young in my early 30s. And you know, I always had this ambition to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, but you know, of course, there are barriers to entry for entrepreneurship, including access to capital, mm-hmm. having the right timing, having the right team. And I really felt in retrospect that I had some ideas that met the moment. If we thought we were having a tough time in 2008 to 2010 with banks and liquidity and access to capital from small, medium-sized business, and I proved I can make money coming out of that situation, imagine what was going through my head during a pandemic Mm -hmm. uh, where I watched trillions of dollars of fiscal monetary stimulus flow, multiples of what we saw coming out of the great financial crisis. 
we knew GFC was, as I said, in retrospect, more of a liquidity crisis than a credit crisis. Mm-hmm. That brings you to the present moment. It kind of feels like it's all of the things. You have elements of a credit crisis. You certainly have liquidity crises and subsectors. And we continue to struggle with the same issues of access to capital, but now we're doing it while rates are going up. We're reflating as an economy. Uh, it's a totally different dynamic for entrepreneurs and mass employers to figure out how to make ends meet. You're right. It seems like all of this is coming together at once. But why the interest in finance? What prompted that? Very simple story. I was a prep school kid. I was going to boarding school in Virginia. and I was a sophomore. There's a boy who lived across the hall from me. His father was an investment banker. Father was a very famous investment banker back in the 90s. My hallmate would fall ill sometimes, and his dad would fly in on his private plane and come check on his son. So I was just a son of a bus driver kid from DC, but I knew when I saw a full-length cashmere coat <laughs> and tales of the private plane, I, I don't think I could pronounce Hermes, but I knew an Hermes tie when I saw one. As boys are wont to do, you know, approach my my classmate and said, you know, Sam, what does your father do? Yeah. And he said, investment banking. And that uh that changed everything for me. It was 1990. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love that school. I'm on the board of my high school today. And uh, I can tell you where I was standing when the words are first spoken to me, investment banking. See, that's so interesting. We never realize who is being motivated by us or someone else. And you just never know. That's a great story. Never know. So I love how you worked for three great investment firms and you had the opportunity to be an entrepreneur within the last two. So what were some of the lessons that you learned there that you took into your own company? Business plans matter. You bet on the jockey, not the horse. If an idea is good enough for your capital, it should be good enough for other people's. Take it as a sign when no one wants to buy what you're selling. Wow. Such good thoughts. Yeah, I learned the overwhelming force of asset allocation, portfolio construction, Mm -hmm. how you actually don't even need to have the brightest idea in the world if you diversify your portfolio properly, if you come up with the right business mix. Um, I learned that the truth in particularly private investing is timing matters. Mm. It is grossly misunderstood and often underrated doesn't matter how great your idea was. If it's 2007 and you wrote a check, you don't look so bright in 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. Whereas you could have a fraction of the intelligence, but you wrote the check in 09, <laughs> you look really smart. There you go. You know, yeah. But we don't, we don't talk about that enough. We pretend like you just invest across cycles and it always works out. And there is an element of market timing and logic that goes into when you want to size up your investments. I would say, in my view, 2023 is such a period. Of course, we know it's hard to have access to capital right now. Okay. But if, you, if you've got it, uh, you're not supposed to be afraid. This is an opportunity to build incredible wealth and you'll monetize it, not this year, but three to five years from now, you'll, you'll be a part of a massive rally. Which is a short time frame, if you think about it. That's not long. No doubt. 
no doubt. We're, we're all in a hurry, but the sense of mortality kicks in faster than young people realize. Oh my <laughs> gosh. You can say that again. Well, we won't talk about that one too long. So um, yeah, because that gets that gets closer and closer for sure. So let's talk about Lafayette Square. Why did you start Lafayette Square? Given my lived experience, I knew the moment of fear and volatility and fiscal and monetary stimulus mm-hmm. was precisely the right time to create a new business. So I just read the room and contemplated while everyone is scared and distracted, that's a time to be fearless and laser focused. And so I wrote a business plan that I thought met the moment. If ESG and impact investing was a big deal pre-pandemic, it would certainly be a bigger deal post-pandemic. If we knew access to capital was a huge challenge pre-pandemic, it would be a bigger challenge post. Uh, And we had a lot of receipts on what works and what doesn't work in building institutions, especially in the alternative investment industry, which progressively over the last 40 years has become more and more of an oligopoly dominated by a handful of big firms Mm -hmm. with a really expensive cost to buy in. So there's a moat around the industry. I had this notion hey, we could create a differentiated alternative investment firm right now during a period of crisis. We could build it at scale and there'll be very little competition. But the key was to have the right team, sufficient working capital. And I felt we'd already ticked the box on having great timing. So Lafayette Square aims to create investment opportunities in overlooked places and underserved markets. Why focus on these communities? Why is that important? And how is it aligned with your mission? Well, we know geography matters in America. Your cost of capital is explicitly impacted by the geographic location of your business. Mm-hmm. Just the level set today, we know in private credit, more than 50% of investments go to five states. Wow. You're talking about a multi-trillion dollar asset class and half the money goes to just five places. We know that if you looked at every zip code across the country and ranked it high income, moderate income, low income, um, high income being top 20%, low moderate income being bottom 80%. If you thought about the world in that way, across the United States, high income places absorb more than two thirds, 75% of the capital. Mm -hmm. So there's tremendous geographic skew in our current capitalist system where 45 states are essentially outside looking in and more than 80% of the places see less than 20% of the money, right? So supply and demand tells you if you can earn a premium return because there's less capital in a place and you can take the same conservative risk, low loan to value, uh, low leverage, high coverage, high margin, recurring, rated, audited, employers of hundreds, if not thousands of local workers, serving local customers. If you see that profile available in the opportunity set of 250,000 companies employing 50 million Americans, you can see where I'm coming from. Yeah. You you can find a hundred good companies in that pool and have a nice diversified portfolio and make a difference for communities that need the money. Uh, At our shop, we think about the intersectionality of place and worker benefits. This intersection is important because we've already discussed how and why geography matters. 
What's not discussed nearly enough is the benefits gap we have in the U.S. today where tens of millions of workers live check to check. Right. It is common knowledge. The data is there for all to see. The adoption of healthcare benefits is chronically low. The utilization of retirement benefits, chronically low. There's inherently a cap on wages, particularly for low, moderate income workers. And it is indisputable that during a period of inflation, and as of today's 5% plus inflation, it is low, moderate income workers who suffer the most. Right. With that paradigm, none of us believes the government will be the source of answers on how we address this. The private markets have to carry water. Capitalism has to heal itself. There are tools that we can bring to bear, such as aligning better employee benefits with debt capital that we make available to our small, medium-sized businesses. So our big idea at Lafayette Square is reward companies who do a good job on employee benefits because they are more likely to repay their debt. Oh, interesting. Don't do it because it feels good. Do it because it's risk mitigant. That gives you inside information about leadership, employee retention, employee well-being, a company's capacity to serve its customers over time because of stability in the workforce. Those things can only be discerned if you, as a leveraged finance investor, have the wherewithal to also think about human capital. That's how we operate. We think about the geography, so zip codes matter, and we think about the workers because workers matter. It sounds so commonsensical to say, <laughs> find a good community and then also align yourself with great workers who feel stable and safe and productive and loyal and therefore get a better job done for the customers. You know, it's interesting, Damien, because not many folks who are investment bankers or large capital firms understand that relationship, that it is the human capital with the financial capital together that bring about the best returns and community impact. And that's basically what you're stating. No question. It's, it is not broadly understood in our capital markets. Mm -mm. Uh, it is not tracked and measured. It also, frankly, does not align with the intentions of most people with power mm -hmm. and money. I, th I think there's a there's a great investment opportunity here that the business case is, is self-evident. Uh, the next step is to make a lot of money and show investment returns, which themselves will attract more capital or more attention. And uh, all of a sudden, we've got competition to align with low, moderate income workers and overlooked, underserved places. I think that that'd be a really great day, a beautiful day. Wouldn't it though? Ah, oh, that's that that does sound great. So why don't you give us some perspective on what place-based investing is and why do you think it's an optimal way to invest in small and mid-sized companies? Well, it's one of the great lessons of finance. Diversification matters, portfolio construction matters. And if you have a portfolio that skews to just five states in a 50-state union, yeah. you probably have some structural flaws in the design of your portfolio. Same concept. If I told you you only invested in software as a service, that's okay if that's the design of your vehicle. But if you claim to be a generalist, you need to have some balance. There need to be other industries represented, not just the one. And as it turns out, most investors don't track 
zip codes. They don't care about place. They don't really think about the good and the bad of Greenwich, Connecticut versus White Plains, New York. Short distance between these two places, very different socioeconomic outcomes. And so if you're an employer, that's your labor pool. Mm-hmm. Chances are your low-wage workers can't afford to live on the nicest block in Greenwich. And chances are, if you're in White Plains, you will draw high-income workers from a place like Greenwich, but you'll draw low-income workers from a place that's you know, neighboring like the Bronx. If we know these things before we even open our doors to start hiring workers, it allows you to very quickly start to conceive what kind of benefits does the organization need to provide to meet the moment. We have a report card on modern benefits. There is a geospatial dynamic to how benefits are adopted and the peculiar needs of workers. I'll give you a couple of obvious examples. There's no Obamacare in the state of Texas. Texas is one of the biggest markets in the United States. Mm -hmm. Is it a novel idea to conclude as a private employer, you have to think deeper and harder about healthcare coverage for your workforce if you're in a state that has a running dispute with Washington, D.C. over these benefits. Mm -hmm. I'll give you another example. If you're in North Carolina, payday lending is legal. Interest in the 300% range can be charged to working class people. Is it a shock to hear that workers living paycheck to paycheck might crack into their 401k or go to their boss for a personal loan or go to a local payday lender with higher frequency in a jurisdiction where it is legal to have this type of predatory lending. Mm-hmm. You don't have that conversation in Washington state or Massachusetts. Right? So place matters. Uh, we're watching a massive migration of human capital to the Southern states. Right. It is not just taxes that instigates that migration. Uh, Obviously, the migration is coming from the North and the South, and the needs of workers. And to be clear, this is a red state and blue state set of challenges. This is not liberal or conservative politics. This is just business. Mm -hmm. There is a geographic rhyme or reason to having the right style and types of benefits for workers. Then you layer on the industry piece. What you need in the quick serve restaurant space is totally different than what you'll need in the software industry. Right. And so to deny the importance of geography is madness. What you do in Alabama is not what you do in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. These are very different situations. And I think the private sector is learning between data science, tremendous um, research and analysis conducted by respected not-for-profits, there's a different path. There's a way to cost-effectively align employee benefits with the economic performance of the organization in a way that is sustainable. It's good for business. Because remember, we're we're talking about 125 million to 150 million lives. Mm -hmm. You know, when you break down the labor pool in the U.S., a third essentially work on some form of government a third work for the largest companies, and then you have the middle market. So it's 50 million people. It's a lot of lives. And 250,000 companies with 250,000 heads of HR 
you have a very up and down, inconsistent set of benefits and services that are administered to tens of millions of people, half of whom we know are struggling at any given moment to make ends meet. And that brings us to the franchising model, because a lot of these employees you're talking about probably work in franchises. And you've invested in many franchise concepts over the years. So why is franchising such a big opportunity for private equity? I think it's a big opportunity for private equity because private equity likes unit economics, scalability, recurring revenue, brands. Private equity likes things it can sell, Mm -hmm. which to me is one of the flaws in private equity. Mm -hmm. The investment horizon is too short, in my view. Um, Quicks or restaurants will be with us for the rest of our life. Truth. So- you know, you take a long-lived asset with a workforce that you know is purposefully lower on the wage scale and designed to accommodate turnover, serving customer base that is price conscious during an inflationary period with higher cost of capital for the enterprise to avail itself of debt. And you see, as we do time and time again, great operators have to find a way And in my experience, great operators understand how to align themselves with their employees and their customers without having to pick sides. Customer has to be satisfied. Customer has to have a great experience. Mm -hmm. But if your workers are in a bad spot, you will not be a preferred employer. Therefore, your, your enterprise won't grow and prosper. I love the generation of QSR entrepreneurs that are navigating these waters and making ends meet because they're, they're coming with all sorts of great innovation. And I think a lot of it comes with their capacity to center workers and to think differently about their benefits and to think differently about the social and economic mobility of their employees. Yes, you can start by pushing a mop in my restaurant. And there's a path to you being a general manager, regional manager, an owner. Right. And I'm not here to hold you down. I'm here to provide you with skills and experiences and exposure and knowledge. You have to, you have to rely on the fact that today, employees have more access at lower cost to information than at any time in human history. We used to make fun of millennials, all of us saying, oh, they don't work hard. And, well, it turns out, you know, like the, the complaining doesn't get you very far. We need every one of these bodies yeah. to help us delight the customer, mm-hmm. as a, a famous billionaire likes to say. So in that paradigm, we have to have a big tent that works for liberals, conservatives, works for very young people and for stodgy old folks like, like myself, I guess. I'd hardly say that, but you know, this is a great segue to talk about an innovative solution that you created at Lafayette Square called Worker Solutions. Can you tell us about that? Very simple idea. We know workers need support in three areas based on all the research. Number one, their financial safety and security. Number two, their health and wellness. Number three, their education and training. It is in those three buckets where employee benefits are lacking. Uh, The standard benefits package in the United States, of course, retirement through 401k, healthcare uh, through private or public insurance, it's not meeting the needs of workers. 
if you stratify your workforce from high income workers to low income workers, it becomes very clear the adoption of generic retirement and healthcare benefits. It's extremely low. I'm talking 25% or less in a lot of industries. It's stunning for the low moderate income workers. Meanwhile, higher income workers are in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. How do we close the gap? Because most of the workers are low moderate income workers. Most of the workers are not high income workers. So if we as an industry are offering benefits that people don't use, what have we done? And that opens up the conversation about worker solutions. Let's offer additional benefits that help workers with their financial safety and security, additional benefits that help workers with their health and wellness, additional benefits that help with education and training. We get that right. We customize benefits across those three areas based on the location of the business and based on the industry, based on the wages of the worker. All of a sudden, you start to have a healthier, more productive workforce that is loyal, where you use data science in a cost-effective way. And interestingly, we see the capital markets rewarding this type of behavior where employers who do this will actually enjoy a lower cost of capital. Interesting. I mean, it's not surprising, but it's great that you can prove that. Um, I want to switch gears for our last little part and ask you if you'd talk about the partnership that you just established with Yum Brands, which is providing capital to underserved markets. Can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah. First, a word on Yum. Love the organization, biggest restaurant business in the world. You've got, interestingly, a predominantly low-moderate income workforce serving mainly low-moderate income customers with stores that are mainly low-moderate income places. So Yum understands place as well as any corporation in America and has been applying data science for many years to the location of its stores, the hiring of workers, and how to satisfy and meet the needs of customers who are, as I said before, increasingly cost conscious. We started off working with Yum on worker solutions, thinking deeply about how to help promote the health and wellness of their labor force because they employ so many human beings in the QSR space that fit the profile of what we know to be this very stressful time in America. Out of that worker solutions relationship came about a financing opportunity where we would take capital to support women and people of color to buy stores from corporate Mm -hmm. um, as part of previously stated commitments by Yum to diversify its franchisee base. Uh, what's, What's terrific about the program is We know the demand for the capital is there. We also know the supply of talented next-gen franchisees is there. Yum gets to stand in the middle and broker these introductions. Uh, And I, I love supporting entrepreneurs in their journey, particularly entrepreneurs who think deeply about labor and how to treat human beings better and run their company in a more efficient way. Well, it's a wonderful partnership. And I know it's something I talk to my students about because it does demonstrate that there is a need to diversify ownership and there is support for it. So that's great. Congratulations on that relationship for both parties. Thank you. So I can't believe we're concluding the end of this. I feel as we could talk forever. But let me ask you, Lafayette Square is very personal to you, Damien. What are you most proud of with what you've done? I don't think we've accomplished anything yet. We're just getting started. The team is wonderful. We've got Great, talented, highly experienced professionals who heard this vision and 
took action during a pandemic fully remote. It just stops you in your tracks. It does. So our team is remarkable and doing something that it believes will make a difference for capitalism itself. So that's an extremely high bar. It's motivating. Everybody has a chip on their shoulder. We work very hard. I'm a child of Washington, D.C., born in Brightwood neighborhood in greater Northwest. And I'll tell you, as a Georgetown alum and as the father of a current Georgetown freshman, it does feel good to be at a place called Lafayette Square, named after a park in D.C. across from Treasury and the White House, where we align ourselves with the the people's work, the spirit and intention of existing laws, and our ability to partner with the Small Business Administration, who's really important to us here at Lafayette Square, being registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Not to geek out too much, but I think during periods of chaos, periods of stress in America, historically, it has been a smart decision to run toward Washington, not away. And you don't always run to D.C. for money. You also run to D.C. for guiding principles and precedents. So much of what we're going through today, this great union has experienced in different ways in the past. And I think there's a lot we can learn from 1958 when the Investment Act was passed, 1977 when CRA was passed, 1980 when the Incentive Act was passed. So much of this stuff has been litigated before. Smart people, wise people whose shoulders we stand on laid a blueprint for what we should prioritize. And it's there for us. You know, we got to center workers. We have to center communities. We have to set clear goals. We have to bring in private sector capital to match stimulus from the public sector. And we do that. We take care of our communities. Great things happen and our children can inherit a better America. Well, that, that is just so inspiring. Thank you, Damien. I'm glad you discussed the intentionality of your naming of your great company and that you've demonstrated that capitalism can have a positive force on communities. So thank you so much for your time. Franchise U is brought to you by the Yum Center for Global Franchise Excellence at the University of Louisville. For more information on the center, visit business.louisville.edu slash yumcgfe. Thank you for listening to Franchise U.